It, it is so wonderful to be gathered together on the Lord's Day. And we are going to complete a series I began uh, three or four weeks ago on rejecting Jesus. We've been going through several examples of rejections. And so far, all of these rejections have had something to say about Jesus. They haven't actually discredited him at, at all. In fact, they've only strengthened his claims to be the Son of God. We're going to turn the tables this morning as we look at the disciples' rejection of Jesus. And this will not necessarily say much about Christ himself, but it'll say more about the disciples because he tests them and we see revealed their true nature. And we move out of Mark, where we've been spending all our time in this series, to John chapter 6. But we know that the events that occur here in John 6 occur around the same place, that is, Galilee, in the same time as the other lessons that we've been discussing from Mark chapters 3 and 6. And the reason we know that is because of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle besides the resurrection of Christ that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. And so it's a, a pivotal miracle. Uh, all four gospel writers felt that they needed to include it in their, in their accounts for the purposes for which they wrote them. And Mark places that miracle in Mark chapter 6 following Jesus' rejection by his hometown, which we started this series with. So this is around the same time. The events of John 6 are around the same time in the same area as the other rejections that we've been talking about in this series from the book of Mark. Jesus and his disciples are now in the synagogue in Capernaum. They're not at camp anymore. You remember camp? I don't know how many of you went to camp as a kid. I didn't go as a kid, but when I became a youth minister, I started going to camp. And camp's a lot of fun. You know, you get to go out away from everything one week every summer out of the year to be with your friends, to be with people who believe the way that you believe, who are your same age. And you spend a lot of time singing and praying and worshiping God and studying the Bible, learning about God, growing together, having fellowship with one another, having a lot of fun with one another. And it's a spiritual high every time. You just feel great. And then you have to come back, and it's a little hard to slip back into the real world. They, they weren't at camp anymore. Let me explain what I mean by this. The disciples had a very difficult, limited commission. And they'd just come back from that, and they were very exhausted. And at the same time, Jesus had learned about the death of his friend, John the Baptist. And so he told the disciples, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to rest, because they had not even had time to eat. So they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd discovered them, and they followed them out there. And Jesus had compassion on them, and that's when he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. After that, he dismissed the crowds... And he sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And that's the night on which he went out to them walking on the water. So they leave that area and they come to Capernaum and the crowds discover them there. And this is the setting of John chapter 6. 
And so I say they're not at camp anymore. They're not out there in the wilderness. They're back in the city. They're in the synagogue. And it's time to get back to real life. And so Jesus starts challenging them more with his teachings. This is the crowd that had been fed five loaves and two fish. They had been healed, many of them. They were following Jesus. They were amazed by him. And he starts telling them that he is the bread of life. And they should feed on his flesh and drink his blood. And they would have eternal life. And then many of his disciples were taken aback by that. Look at John chapter 6, verse 60. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can believe it? Hard comes from a Greek word, scleros, from which we get multiple sclerosis, which is a disease where the damaged nerve fibers uh, form scar tissue, or scleroderma, a hardening of the skin, sometimes of the internal organs. So they were saying, this is hard. And there are two ways to interpret that. Either it was hard to understand, or it was hard to follow. And a lot of what he says in John 6 is hard to understand, but the meaning that they uh, meant there, their intended meaning was, this is too hard to follow. What he's saying is too hard to follow. He was telling them, that in order to have eternal life, they must feed on his flesh and drink his blood. Now, he didn't mean that literally. I hope we all understand that. He wasn't talking about cannibalism or something like that. What he was saying is, you're, you need to change your diet. What's your true drink? What's your true food? What you eat is what nourishes you, energizes you. He's saying, what is it that drives you? You need to change your diet because what's driving you is not going to give you eternal life. What is it that drives you? Is it wealth? Is it your career? Is it human relationships? Is it pleasure? Is it, is it fun? What is it that makes you tick? Is that going to sustain you eternally? Now, this is the challenge he was issuing to the disciples. And when he did that, we come to John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They rejected him for the same reasons the others rejected him. I, th I think it's interesting that we find a similar comment in verse 42, if you want to back up a little bit, that we had seen in the Gospel of Mark. They say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? They weren't denying the miracle. I mean, that's why they were still following him. They knew this man somehow made five loaves and two fish feed over 10,000 people. They didn't deny that. Jesus' hometown didn't deny his miracles. What bothered them is when he came back home, this child who'd grown up here, the son of Joseph the carpenter, was followed by a train of disciples, and he was asking the rest of the hometown to follow him as well. His family knew that he was special. They didn't discredit his miracles. They didn't like that he was choosing his spiritual family over his physical family. The scribes didn't deny his miracles. They 
admitted freely that he was casting out demons, but they said he was doing it by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, in other words, Satan. And they were doing that because they were afraid he was going to take their power away from them. All of them were worried about his wanting to transform them. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to go to heaven. They wanted to be forgiven, but they still wanted to maintain control over their own lives. They didn't want Jesus to be at the center. They didn't want to, him to be what nourished them and energized them. And so when he got to that part, when he got past the miracles, past the ethical teachings, past the um, uh, appraisals of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he got down to what drives you, what energizes you, what's the center of your life, that's when they walked away from him. I think you see that commonality throughout all four rejections that we've been studying. But you'll notice these were disciples. It's hard enough when your hometown and your religious leaders and your family turns their back on you. But now, the disciples? And he says in verse 64, there are some of you, talking to the disciples, who do not believe. So this is the outline we're going to follow as we look at this. First of all, we're going to look at the disciples who do not believe. And then secondly, we're going to look at the disciples who believe. And hopefully as we do this contrast, you'll be able to evaluate yourself as a disciple and ask yourself, am I one who believes, really believes? Or am I one who doesn't believe? Am I still not putting Jesus at the center of my life? Am I still trying to control my life? Am I headed for eternal life or something else? Let's start with the disciples who do not believe. And I want to notice that the disciples who do not believe are even more dangerous than non-disciples. Uh, another way of putting it, you know, a disciple is a follower. So non-followers are not nearly as dangerous as false followers. And that's because the non-followers have this in common with the true believers. They understand and accept the authority claims of Jesus Christ. You see, the non-followers and the non-disciples, they know that Jesus is demanding that we submit everything to him. They know that Jesus is claiming to be your king. And they don't like it, so they walk away from him immediately. And the true disciples know this as well, and they accept it, and they, they submit to his authority. But the false followers, the non-believing disciples, well, all of that doubt is hidden under a veneer of religion. It's like a, a disease that you have without knowing it. You, you seem to be healthy, but there's a secret killer inside of you. I've heard... I've heard uh, blood, high blood pressure called the silent killer because uh, you can have high blood pressure that's very dangerous without realizing it. And sometimes if you let it go too long, it can cause a stroke or, or even death. And so you go get your blood pressure checked regularly because your body may not tell you right away that you have this, this dangerous problem. You, you could have cancer for a long time and not know it until it's metastasized all through your body and it's too late to do anything about it. And this is what a believer, a disciple who doesn't believe, this is what it's like for them because they think they're doing everything right. 
They're going to church all the time. They're following Jesus. But they haven't made him the center of their lives. And that's really the most dangerous position to be in. Because you may not be able to have time to correct it. Jesus talked about this all the time, by the way. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said on that day, talking about Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A few verses later, he concludes the Sermon on the Mount and he tells this little parable about the wise man and the foolish man. Wise man built his house on the rock, Foolish man built his house on the sand. They both built houses. So it looks like they're okay until the storms come. And then what happens? Well, the wise man's house stood, but the foolish man's house was blown away because it rested on the wrong foundation. What is he warning about there? False disciples. Disciples who do not believe, who hear, but do not do. In the parable of the sower, he talks about four different types of soil. And the soils represent different conditions of the human heart. And you'll notice in the parable, three of the four soils generate the seed, grows into a plant. They germinate and grow into a plant. But then when the elements come, the sun scorches down on it, the thorns grow up, after that, only one plant shows itself to be in good soil. He's talking again about the deceitfulness of appearances and the need for him to be the center of our lives. One time he's going along with his disciples and, and somebody shouts out to him, Lord, I will go with you wherever you go. And he says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was constantly warning about this problem of false discipleship. Both true disciples and non-believers understand those claims of authority, but the false disciples think they can have it both ways. I can have eternal life, and at the same time, I can still maintain control over my life. We need to study the difference, because as the church, our mission is to make disciples. You know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I have told you to observe, and behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Our job description is to make disciples. Now, how do we do that if we don't know what a disciple is? And so we look here at John 6 and we see there is such a thing as a false disciple, one who does not truly believe. Now, since a disciple is a follower of Jesus, then a false disciple must be someone who is following a Jesus, but not the Jesus. And there are four examples in the text of this. And, and John 6 is a really long chapter, so I can't go over everything that Jesus is telling and everything that's going on here, but we can get some highlights here about this false discipleship problem. And the first type of Jesus, not the Jesus that 
some of these disciples who didn't believe were following was the political king. After he fed the 5,000, of course, a lot of people were very impressed by that. And uh, they even tried to take him by force and make him king. John tells us in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And he resisted. Now, Jesus was a king, and he claimed to be a king and have a kingdom. But as he told Pilate in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And so they were looking for a different kind of king than he was. A political king. A king of their own making. Someone over a limited earthly government. Jesus is king, but he's not limited to a particular nation or an earthly government. He's king of all. He is over the spiritual kingdom. We can't reduce him down to a political king. Number two, some reduced him down to a trend. There were crowds following. Uh, John mentions the crowds in John 6, 2. He mentions the crowds again in John chapter 6, verse 22. Some people were following him just because everybody else was following. Jesus was popular up to this point. This was a watershed moment. Uh, you remember in the other rejections we studied, there were still a lot of crowds around him. Uh, when Jesus' family, Mark chapter 3, tried to get into the house where he was teaching, they couldn't get in because the crowd was pressing him. They were in a circle around him. They had to stand outside the house and call out to him. That was in the same city where he's preaching here in John chapter 6 in Capernaum. But after John 6, after he challenges them with these teachings about making him the center of their lives, the crowds aren't nearly as large as they were. And that's because he was just a trend. And it makes us wonder, you know, why do I follow Jesus? We need to ask ourselves, am I just here because it's easy to be here, because my family is here, because it's what's expected of me, because my neighbors, you know, respect me for being at church, because that's what, I, you know, just a person should do in my position? Or are you here because Jesus is what drives you, what energizes you. You know, the crowds can lead you to disbelief, and we warn about that all the time. But crowds can also lead you to false belief. You need to examine your heart. Wherever it leads you, it's never good to get there by following the herd. Number three, some followed him as the miracle worker. Look at John chapter 6, verse 26. He says something very interesting here. It looks like he's contrasting miracles with what the loaves did. No, notice how he says it. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, wasn't eating their fill of the loaves a sign? John only uses this word sign for miracles. See, the word miracle doesn't appear in the gospel according to John because in John, the miracles were supposed to signify things. They weren't just acts to sensationalize Christ, to amaze people, make jaws drop. And they weren't even just to heal the sick, for instance, or to feed empty stomachs. I mean, that benefit was there, but the main purpose was to show Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
And so they were signs, but to the crowd, they were just an amazing way to get a meal. It was a shortcut to, a, to an earthly need. And so he contrasted what it was, a sign, with the way they interpreted it, getting filled up by loaves. And I think the same problem occurs today, even though we live in a non-miraculous age, I think the same thing occurs whenever we want, we see somebody and their life's going well and we know they go to church and they seem happy and they have peace and we think, hey, I'll try that. I'll give that a shot. Let me see if that works. That's a get happy quick scheme. I, I'm not necessarily wanting to re relinquish all the re control over my life to Jesus, but I'll go to church and see if I feel better. That's kind of the same spirit behind the people who are following Jesus just as a miracle worker. Hey, he can fix everything for me and I can still have everything my way. Finally, they were following a Jesus who was the one with all the answers. And Jesus does have all the answers. Jesus' wisdom is from heaven, as he said. And if you want to know the truth, you follow Jesus. But some were following him just because they liked to be in the know. They liked to be right. And they weren't using the truth for its intended purposes. If you look at John 6, verse 45, he explains what the word is for and what the teaching of God is for. It is written in the prophets, he said, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The reason to know the Bible is to allow it to draw you to Jesus so that he can be the center of your life. It's not to win arguments. It's not to be right. It's not so you can look smart. It's not so you can look religious and get everybody to look at you. It's so that you will always be looking at Jesus. That's what it's for. And so a lot of people, without realizing it, are disciples who do not believe because they're following a Jesus instead of the Jesus. And when you follow him as anything less than Lord and Savior, you are a false follower. So ask yourself, what's my true drink? What is my true food? What nourishes me? What drives me? What energizes me? And will that lead to eternal life? If it's your career, eventually you're going to lose your career. If it's your health, eventually you're going to lose your health. If it's human relationships, eventually somebody's going to disappoint you. Somebody's going to forsake you. You know, there are all kinds of things we bank our hopes on. But if they're from earth, whatever they are, they're going to disappoint. There's only one person who can give us eternal life. Only one who can be our true drink and food. And that's Jesus. And until we see that, we are going to lose whatever it is that's been driving us. In John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is the food that will last forever, that will never, that will never forsake us. Let's turn from the disciples who do not believe to the disciples who believe. And our example here is Peter. Now, Peter, he said a lot of foolish things, right? Uh, we can make a long list of foolish things Peter said, especially during Jesus' ministry. When we get to the book of Acts, he starts looking great. 
You know, he still stumbles up here and there. And we get to his epistles and we see Peter fully mature. You know, the great leader of the church. But he's still maturing, still growing here when he's with Jesus. So a lot, we could point out a lot of silly things that Peter said or things that he shouldn't have said. And we can go to the denials of Peter. And we're, we're bad about emphasizing those when we look at Peter. And I think we do that so much because we say so many foolish things and we can relate to him, but we've got to give him credit. At least two times, Peter expresses what uh, Timothy Keller calls the irreducible minimum of what it means to follow Jesus. And the first time is in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some are saying John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he asks them straight. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We call that the good confession. Because that's the irreducible minimum of what you have to believe to be saved. You have to believe that Jesus of Nazareth... This man who was born in the first century, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, you have to believe that he is the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. And everyone who becomes a Christian here at Asheville Road makes that confession publicly. The good confession. So that's the first time Peter said something during Jesus' earthly ministry that was very impressive. And in John 6 is the second time. The second time he expresses the irreducible minimum of what it means to believe in Christ, what you've got to believe in order to be saved. And we're going to break it down into three parts. And here's the first part from verse 68. The other disciples, this large group, and when we're saying disciples here in verse 66, it's not the apostles, but a larger group of disciples. They turned and deserted him and no longer followed him. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, to Peter and the others, do you want to go away as well? Let's pause here for a minute before we get to Peter's response. Don't forget that Jesus was a human being. And don't forget that God has emotions and feelings and that he wants a relationship with us. Do you think it hurts God when we rebel against him? It hurts him deeply. I know at least twice in the Bible it speaks of God being grieved over our sins. Grief is awful, and God feels grief. So certainly Jesus, as a human being walking around on earth, yes, he was God, but he was human too. And don't you think after all the hours he spent, after not being able to get any rest, any peace ever, with crowds around him all the time, giving, 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 nobody giving to him, never receiving. Don't you think that sometimes he was just heartbroken over the rejection? These people who followed him, whom he fed, they turned their back on him when he asked them to do what he had come for them for. Make me the center of your life. I will give you eternal life. This is a hard saying. 
we can't believe this. They turned their back and were walking with him no more. But Peter and the other apostles stayed behind. And he looked to them, maybe with tears in his eyes. Will you go away as well? Peter says three things. We're going to break it down in three parts. The first part is, Lord, to whom shall we go? What's the alternative? Now, that's a very hard thing to say. Let me tell you why. It's an admission that not even I can control my life in the right direction. Not even I know what to do. I'm I'm giving up all my control. Have you ever done this when you're in a situation and you know you can't handle it? You know that you need some help. Somebody offers you help and you say, I can handle it. I've done that. Have you ever done that? You can't handle it. You say, I got it under control. No, you don't. You, you've been there. You know, I've got this under control. What you're saying is, I'm too proud to let you help me. Do you know how hard it was for Peter just to start and say, there's no other alternative. The government's not going to get me out of this. My family's not going to help me out of this. My career's not going to help me out of this. I can't get me out of this. Jesus, get me out of this. To whom shall we go? The second part. You have the words of eternal life. Here's a clear distinction between Jesus and the people who rejected him. Clear distinction between Peter and the people who rejected Jesus. Peter wasn't following for the miracles. He was following him for him. He wanted Jesus. He wanted to give him his whole life. It's really hard to trust somebody with your life. To just give it over to somebody who thinks very differently from you. You know, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You ever read something in the Bible and you say, boy, that just, that's not the way that I feel it should be. He thinks differently than you. Can you trust him where your flesh disagrees with his word? Can you go that far? Peter said, I know it's you, not me, that has the words of eternal life. Why is it after what Peter said is so demonstrably true, why is it that people reject Jesus? Why did this crowd reject him? He's trying to give them eternal life. I think what we see in these first two things is it's hard to receive powerful, life-transforming gifts. And you know this to be true. Is there, has anybody ever tried to give you something really big and it's hard to receive? Uh, I remember one time I was having car trouble and I had no money and somebody tried to give me a pickup truck and I almost took it. He had the keys in his hand. It was extended out. All I had to do was take it. He, He had the title. It was good to go. 
And I almost took it, but I, I stopped. There was another time where somebody tried to give me several thousand dollars. And it wasn't a scheme or anything. He was just trying to help me out. And, and I almost took it, but I just couldn't do it. And there, there were a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is by receiving that big gift, I was going to be saying something about myself. Now, whether it was admitting I have financial problems or admitting that I needed help or admitting that I couldn't take care of it all myself, whatever that was, it was going to say something that I didn't want to say. All right, now what happens when Jesus says, I'm offering you forgiveness? What do you have to do to receive that gift? You have to admit you're a sinner. I mean, you have to really admit it. When it gets real personal, uh, maybe you've been in a situation before where you've tried to forgive somebody and they say, I don't want your forgiveness. Why would they say that? Isn't it nice to forgive people? Well, if somebody says, I forgive you and I accept that, that means that I hurt that person. I wronged that person. And this is why so many people turn their back on Jesus. Because they didn't want to get to that point. I need help. I can't do it myself. I'm wrong. I've sinned. I don't deserve salvation. But Peter was there. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he says this. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The identity Peter and the other apostles first believed and then came to know was that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Not just a king, not just a trendsetter, not just a miracle worker, not just the one with all the right answers. Yes, he was those things, but he was those things because he was ultimately the Holy One of God. And that's why he could be king and set trends, and work miracles. And that's why he had all the answers, because he was the Holy One of God. There's the difference between the true believers and the false followers. The disciples who do not believe and the disciples who believe. The disciples who do not believe are wanting to have their cake and eat it too. I'll follow Jesus. I just don't want to give him full control of my life. I still have a say in this. I want to have some input in this. But the true disciple says, I will follow you wherever you go. Even when I don't understand, I will follow you all the way. Total commitment, all the way. Jesus asked, will you also go away? And that statement still stands. That question is still being asked. It's being asked right now. Will you also go away? Will you turn your back on Jesus? When he challenges you and asks you to go all the way with him, will you turn your back on him? What kind of a disciple are you? Are you a disciple who doesn't believe in the sense of putting all your life in his hands? Or are you someone who's ready to follow him wherever he asks you to go. If you want to follow Jesus truly and fully and wholly, and you need some help with that this morning, we're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to come. Let us help you. Let us pray with you. Let us help you fulfill whatever's lacking right now as we stand and as we sing.